Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, So That You May Believe, the study of the seven signs Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. Good morning, everybody. Please open in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5. We're currently in a series called So That You May Believe, in which we're looking at the seven signs that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John, which John tells us he recorded for us, So That You May Believe. Today we're in the third of these seven. They're in chapter 5. So uh, please bow your heads with me, and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, thank you that you love us and you speak to us. Lord, you are faithful to meet us whenever we open your word. And Lord, as we come now, as we open your word, as we come here to seek you and to hear your voice, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive, and Lord, help us that we might respond appropriately to what your word has for us, this message in your word today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll be honest with you guys and tell you, you know, I had a really hard week this week. Uh, there were some things that happened to and happened with some people that I love that really broke my heart and filled me with sadness and concern. And there was a point this week, you know, with all the things that were going on, where I thought, you know, if I could only just know how it's all going to turn out, that would, I would be able to endure anything if I could just know that it was going to be okay in the end. You know, that would just give me the strength to keep going in the midst of the things that, you know, worry me and burden my heart. I feel like I could face any hardship if I knew how it was going to turn out in the end. And I could not only do that, if I did know that, then not only could I face it and just get through it, but I could actually face it with confidence and with joy. And, it, you know, I think it's the anticipation. It's the uncertainty of situations in this life that create fear and worry in our hearts. And yet, imagine if you did know. Imagine if, you, if that thing which maybe in your life is weighing heavily on your heart, imagine if you could know how it was going to turn out in the end and that it was going to be okay. Wouldn't that change the way that you live your days here and now? Wouldn't it change the way that you think about and go through that situation? It's kind of like if you've ever, <clears throat> if you've ever recorded a sports game like uh, hockey or basketball or baseball, whatever your sport is. You, you recorded a game to watch after the event was live. And right before you, you go home to watch it, somebody in passing tells you what the score was of the game, right? Like who won. And, uh, and so when you watch the game, you already know what the end result is going to be. And doesn't that change the way that you watch the game? Doesn't it change the way you experience the game as you watch it? So, for example, if you know that your team is going to win in the end, then you don't panic if halfway through you're watching the game and your team is, you know, losing really badly. You don't panic because you know that in the end it's going to be okay. Your team's going to win. In fact, the more your team is losing, actually, uh, the more exciting it is to watch the game. Uh, you're not nervous. Rather, you're kind of anticipating excitedly how they're going to pull this off because you know that in the end somehow they're going to win. Well, in a way, that's exactly what the Christian life is like. You may not know how everything in your life is going to play out exactly, but you can be sure 
that if your trust is in Jesus, it is going to turn out in the big picture. It's going to turn out okay in the end. And that hope, by the way, it changes the way you live here and now, doesn't it? Just like watching that game where you know that in the end the team's going to win. It allows you to face whatever you're going through with confidence and even maybe even a degree of excitement because you're anticipating, you're waiting to see how God is going to work and what God is going to do through those difficult situations you face. Well, in our text today, we're going to meet a man who was in an absolutely hopeless situation. All hope was gone. And yet, when Jesus entered into that situation, it changed everything. It was no longer hopeless. But even more than that, what Jesus did in this situation, it was a sign it was a sign of what Jesus came to do, who he is and what he came to do, how he came to bring healing and rest to those who are broken and weary if you put your trust in him. And so the title of today's message is, Do You Want to Be Healed? Do you want to be healed? And what we're going to see in our passage today, here's our summary sentence, our takeaway truth. It's our outline for studying this passage. I give you a sentence every week, and then we work our way through it. Here's what it is for this week. The healing of a lame man on the Sabbath was a sign that Jesus is God come to bring healing and rest to those who cannot save themselves and believe in him. So I'll say it one more time, and then we'll break it down and use it as our outline for studying this text. The healing of a lame man on the Sabbath was a sign that Jesus is God come to bring healing and rest to those who cannot save themselves and believe in him. So let's take that sentence and break it down into three parts. The first part is the healing of a lame man. Now, it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. One thing you'll notice about the Gospel of John as we study through it is that John's Gospel centers around Jesus' trips up to Jerusalem for the Jewish festivals. There's a total of five trips recorded in the Gospel of John where Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and most of the big events in the book are centered on those trips that Jesus takes to Jerusalem. This, by the way, is the second of five trips here as we work our way through the gospel of John. Now the reason why Jesus kept going up to Jerusalem is because there were three annual feasts, the three great feasts of the Jews. Uh, the Jewish people who were able would, were required to go up to Jerusalem every year for three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we don't know exactly which feast this was, but this is, again, the second of Jesus' five visits to Jerusalem that John records for us in the gospel, and it was for one of those three feasts. It says in verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, this is a very interesting verse, and here's why. Because for many years, critics of the Bible, right? People who said, you know, the Bible's made up, it's not historically accurate, etc. They love to point to this verse because for many years, archaeologists believed that this place didn't actually exist. And, and the reason is because we know exactly where the Sheep Gate is. You see, Jerusalem's an ancient city, and like many ancient cities, it's surrounded by a wall. And the only way in and out of the ancient city is through these certain gates. And so we know exactly where all the gates are. And the Sheep Gate is still a prominent gate. It's a gate that Jesus would have entered through many times. It's the one which is really, really close to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And so Jesus would have entered the Sheep Gate many times, so we know exactly where it's at. And, uh, and you can see it in Jerusalem even to this day. So because we know where the Sheep Gate is, you know, people said, okay, John's Gospel says there's a pool with a five, you know, roofed colonnades around it. And they would say, look, Jerusalem's not that big. There is no pool like that near the Sheep Gate. In fact, they would say, you know what, there's no pool like that in the rest of the city either. And, and so what they said is, here you go. There's the proof. The Bible isn't historically reliable. It isn't accurate. And some people went so far as to make this conclusion, even based on just this verse. They would say, the Gospel of John must not have been written by the Apostle John. Rather, it must have been written much later by somebody else who had never even been to Jerusalem because anybody who'd ever been to Jerusalem would know that there is no pool like this near the Sheep Gate with five roofed colonnades as it describes here. But then, guess what happened? Archaeologists were digging in Jerusalem and they found the remains of this colonnade and the pool, exactly where John's gospel says it is, near the Sheep Gate, and exactly the way that John describes it being, five roofed colonnades. So when you go to Jerusalem, this is one of the things that you can go and see. It's on the must-see list for sites in Jerusalem, and you should definitely go there if you get the chance. But here's the point. This is an important example of how, as more and more archaeology and the work of historians goes on, rather than disproving the Bible, it's actually doing the opposite. It's actually showing how reliable and historically accurate the Bible is. Well, around this pool, there by the sheep gate, under the colonnades, John tells us in verse 3, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, the reason why these handicapped people were laying around this pool is because there was a belief, people had a belief at that time, that the water in this pool, when the water was stirred up, possibly by an underground uh, aquifer or spring, you know, which fed the pool. When the water was stirred up, when the water would move, the first person into the pool would get healed of whatever infirmity or sickness they had. That's what they believed. And so the handicapped people from the city, they were all here with their various ailments and various degrees of sickness, hoping for the opportunity to get into the water when the water was stirred up so they could be healed. And the name of this place was Bethesda, which, by the way, means... House of Mercy. It's kind of an interesting name, right? House of Mercy, because these people came to this place hoping for mercy, hoping for relief from their injuries and ailments. But I want you to think about this. Rather than mercy, what they received instead was a cruel joke. And here's why. Think about this. Here's a bunch of people who are blind, lame, and paralyzed. And the message to these people is... When the water moves, you better try hard to get in. First one in the pool wins. Now that's terrible. It's cruel because think about it. Who is going to be the first one in the pool? Not the paralyzed guy. Not the, not the guy who can't walk. Not the blind guy. He can't even see where he's going, right? The first person in the pool will always be the person who is most physically fit. Isn't that a sad irony? The healthiest person at the pool will always win. And if this really worked the way they thought it did, the only people who would ever get healed were the ones who needed it the least. That's not mercy. That's the opposite of mercy. 
It's a message that says, if you're fastest, if you're the best, you can be healed. If you're a winner, if you can do it, God helps those who help themselves. So be first, be a winner, defeat everybody else. It's all up to you and you can be healed if you try hard enough and you're good enough. I'll tell you what, for the people at the pool who needed to be healed the most, that was a cruel joke. And yet there they were, hoping beyond hope because there was nowhere else for them to turn. And Jesus, during his time in Jerusalem for this feast, he goes down to this place to check it out and visit these people. Verse 5. One man who was there, who had been an invalid for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Kind of a funny question to ask a handicapped guy who's sitting next to a pool where you supposedly get healed. Do you want to be healed? It's kind of like if I asked you, hi, do you like sunshine and babies who smile? Do you like money and rainbows, right? Uh, yes, the answer is always yes, right? Especially for a sick man sitting next to a pool that can supposedly heal him. Obviously, he wants to be healed. That's why he's here. But this pool thing, and this is why Jesus asks, is to say, you want to be healed, don't you? But this pool thing, it's not working out for you, is it? Verse 7, the sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps in before me. Just try and hear the frustration in his words. For 38 years, this man's been sick, unable to move. Imagine the years of dis disappointment and discouragement, waiting for the waters to move. And then every time the waters move, somebody else gets into the water before him because he's unable to move. He's unable to help himself out and get himself into the water. Talk about a hopeless situation. He desperately wants to be healed, and yet no matter how hard he tries, he doesn't have the ability to fix his own problem, and he never will, and there's no one to help him. And it would appear that this man has no idea who Jesus is, because he's only hoping when he meets Jesus that Jesus can help him accomplish his goal, which is to be the first one into the pool when the water moves. But I want you to see this. Rather than coming along to be this man's sidekick, to give him a shot in the arm, to give him a boost that he needs. Jesus comes to do something altogether different and so much better. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. You see, what this man could not do for himself, Jesus did for him. In Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, the prophet Isaiah foretold and prophesied that when the Messiah would come, then the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf would be unstopped, and then the lame would leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute would sing for joy. So the fact that Jesus healed this man was a fulfillment of that prophecy. It was a sign that Jesus was the long-awaited Savior of the world. But I want you to notice something about the way Jesus healed this man. Jesus told him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Jesus was calling him to do something that he was incapable of doing. He couldn't do that. Listen, if this man was able to just get up and walk, he would have done it a long time ago, but he couldn't. And yet Jesus called him to do something that he was unable to do. But here's the thing. As Jesus called him to do it, Jesus also enabled him to do the thing he was calling him to do. Friends, do you know that that's also true in your life as well? That when God calls you to do something, he will provide you with the strength, the ability, the power to do that thing as you obey him and follow what he says. 
So the question is, what has God called you to do? Maybe God has called you to a particular vocation. Maybe he's called you to a certain ministry. Has he called you to be a student or a spouse or a parent? Has he called you, for example, just to simply obey him in some area of your life? Listen, maybe God has called you to do something and you say, that's a lot. Like, I I don't know if I can do that. I, I feel like I'm incapable of doing what you're asking me to do, God. Well, here's what's cool. When God calls you to do something, he will also enable you to do that which he calls you to do as you step out in faith and obey him. Remember, faith means trusting God enough to do what he says. That's the definition. Trusting God enough to do what he says. We see examples of it throughout the Bible. God often calls people to do things that are way beyond their ability, things that they are not capable of doing. He he calls people to do things that they couldn't possibly do on their own. But here's what always happens. If you're willing to trust him enough to do what he says, he will provide the ability and the strength that you lack, and he will enable you to do what he's calling you to do as you obey him. You see, I think about Moses. He was a shepherd, but not even like the cool kind where you own a bunch of sheep. He was the kind of shepherd who didn't own any sheep, right? He watched other people's sheep. He was kind of the lowest man on the proverbial totem pole in society. And on top of it all, he had a speech impediment. But God called Moses to go to Egypt and to speak to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and demand that Pharaoh release all of his slaves, which, by the way, is not something Pharaoh wanted to do. And Moses said, God, you're calling me to do this thing, but I can't do that. Like, you've got the wrong guy. I have a speech impediment. I can't go and speak to Pharaoh. Uh, no one, also, I can't lead these people. No one will follow me. And what about the obstacles? What about the Red Sea? It's too big of an obstacle. What about the desert that has no food and no water in it? That's impossible. There's no way I can do that. But God was calling him to do it. And as Moses chose to step out and trust God enough to do what he said, God did all the things that Moses couldn't do. You know, what if this man here in John 5, what if Jesus said to him, take up your mat and walk? And the man said, no, I can't do that. That's beyond what I'm able to do. Don't tell me to do that. I can't do it, so I'm not even going to try. Instead, this man, he responded to what Jesus called him to do. And as he did, he found that in that moment, Jesus had given him the ability to do what he called him to do. Friends, I believe that same thing is true for you and me. That God, by his super abundant grace, he will give you the strength to do what he's calling you to do as you trust him enough to do what he says. So rather than saying, no, I can't, or no, I won't, when God calls you to do something, instead take that step of faith and obedience and see and experience how God's power is made manifest in your life. Brings us to the next part of our sentence. Not only did Jesus heal this lame man, but he healed him on a Sabbath. Right after this amazing story, this amazing moment where this man is healed, we're told at the end of verse 9, now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now just pause for a second. How ridiculous is this? This guy just got healed. He's been lame for 38 years. And they're like, hey, you're not supposed to be carrying your bed. Rather than celebrating the miracle that's been performed, all they care about is, oh, this guy's breaking this rule. 
Well, look, he says, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. So the Old Testament law said that you were not allowed to work on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And that included, by the way, according to Jeremiah 17, it actually included carrying loads. But here was the question. What constitutes a load, right? Like, how much exactly is a load? Right? Can, can you carry one pound? How about five pounds? Can you carry five pounds? How about ten? How about 20? Can we, get, can we get 25 pounds? Like at what point do you cross the line between something you're allowed to carry and something you're not allowed to carry where you're carrying a load? Well, here's the thing. God never actually defined for them how much constitutes a load, like how much you're allowed to carry versus how much you're not allowed to carry. Uh, you know, and here's why. God didn't tell them how much it was because that's not the point and, he, and let me stick with you, or stick with me for a second. Let me explain this. The point is not to figure out how much constitutes a load. The point, the spirit of this law was that God wanted the people to take a day off work in order to rest and to recharge both physically and relationally and spiritually. The purpose of the law, the heart behind it, was that God was saying to us and to them, don't be a slave to your work. Don't be a slave to productivity and accomplishments. I mean, how, how important is that message for us in our society today, right? Don't be a slave to these things because you were made for more than just productivity and producing things and getting stuff done. You were made to know God and be in relationship with him. You were made to enjoy the blessings that God has given you in this life. So you know what? Once a week, take a day off work. Don't work, okay? And, and, and just Worship God, spend time with people you love, enjoy the things that God's given you. That's the heart of the law. But these religious people at the time, instead of focusing on the spirit of this law, instead they were obsessed with the letter of the law. They wanted to know, how many pounds exactly are you not allowed to carry on the Sabbath? And which items are you allowed to carry? Which items are you not allowed to carry? And again, they're completely missing the point. But... They compiled a list, and they wrote it down in what's called a Mishnah, which is kind of like what we would call today, kind of like a commentary. It was like the rabbi's thoughts about the scriptures, right? So they wrote it down in a Mishnah, but they treated these Mishnahs as if they were almost on the same level as scripture. So they compiled a list. So for example, they said, here are some things that, that were on their list. They said, it's okay to write one letter, but you can't write two letters, right? Two letters, no. One letter, yeah. Okay? They said, listen, you're not allowed to bake, knead, wash, weave. You're allowed to make one loop, but you are not allowed to make two loops. So that means you can't tie your shoes, I guess, unless you tuck them into your shoes, which is always uncomfortable. And they said, here's the other thing. On the Sabbath, you're not allowed to carry a mat that you use to sleep on. That was also on the list. Now, remember, these laws were not in the Bible. These are rules these religious leaders made up, but they told people, if you don't follow these rules, our interpretation of it, then you're not right with God. Now, keep in mind, Jesus was very familiar with both the Old Testament scriptures and very familiar with the Jewish traditions. And so when Jesus went and healed this man on the Sabbath and told him to pick up his mat, 
That wasn't an accident. It isn't like Jesus was like, oh, I forgot which day of the week it was. I always mess that up. Oh, like, oh, I had no idea this would upset these guys. No, no, no. He knew exactly what he was doing, right? It was intentional. Jesus was poking the bear, right? He was throwing rocks at the beehive. You can imagine Jesus, like right before he did this, saying to his disciples, guys, hold my wineskin. Like, watch this. And then he goes and heals this guy on the Sabbath, right? Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew the reaction he was going to get from the religious leaders because he was intentionally provoking what he knew would be an important and revealing conversation. But this guy, he still doesn't know who Jesus is, right? And so we read in verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, why did Jesus say this? Was Jesus implying that this man's previous infirmity had been caused by some sinful action he had performed? Or could it be that when Jesus found this man, this man was at that moment doing something sinful, and Jesus told him, stop doing that sinful thing, right? I don't know. The, the text doesn't tell us, but here's what we can say with all certainty. What Jesus was telling this man is that there is something worse. There is something worse than being physically handicapped. There is something worse than, than having a physical ailment. And that worst thing is to experience the judgment of God upon your life for your sins. You see, Jesus was calling this man to repent of his sins. That's a word that Jesus used a lot, repent. You know what it means? To repent means to change directions, right? So it's more than just like feeling bad about what you did. Feeling bad is kind of cheap, to be honest, right? Like anybody can feel bad, but that doesn't mean you're going to change, right? And so repentance is when you don't just feel bad, but you actually choose to turn away from things and turn to God instead, so not only is Jesus saying that there is something worse than being physically handicapped, he's also saying that there is something better and more important and more imperative than having your problems here in this life taken care of and taken away. See, the reason Jesus came, friends, you know this, I hope, Jesus came not just to make your life more comfortable here on earth. Jesus came to meet your ultimate need, your greatest need, not just the healing of your body and the comfort of your body, but the healing of your soul. And the way to receive that healing is to repent, to turn away from your sins and turn to God in faith. Well, we don't know if this man ever did repent of his sins and turn to God, but here's what it says in verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Kind of ratted Jesus out, okay? But I think that's what Jesus wanted, as you'll see. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, verse 16, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, here's what we're going to see. Starting at this point in the Gospel of John and for the next several chapters, we're going to see the Jewish religious leaders are increasingly antagonistic towards Jesus. And you're going to see why. If you want to see why, check out the conversation that Jesus has with the religious leaders that takes place for the rest of this chapter. That brings us to our next point. The healing of a lame man on the Sabbath was a sign that Jesus is God come to bring healing and rest to those who cannot save themselves. So here's how Jesus Jesus responds when the Jewish religious leaders come after him for healing this man on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Now, do you understand what Jesus is saying here? Because it's pretty 
pretty big. It's pretty incredible. And it's easy to just pass this by and say, okay, cool, next verse. But I want you to stop here because it's pretty incredible. Think about what he's saying. He says, you know who doesn't have to take the day off on the Sabbath? God. So God, during creation, he created the world for six days. Then on the seventh day, he didn't. He rested. But ever since then, God has not stopped working, right? So he worked, basically God works on Saturdays is what it means. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, God is allowed to work on Saturdays. And since I'm God, I also am allowed to work on Saturdays. Now that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Verse 18, the Jews understood what he was saying. This is, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, what John is telling us here in this gospel is that Jesus didn't just perform miracles because he could or just for the sake of performing miracles. No, Jesus' miracles all served a purpose. They weren't just miracles. They were signs. And what that means is that all of these miracles signified something. They pointed to something about Jesus that was unique, right? Each of these signs shows us something unique about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And what this sign in particular points to is the fact that Jesus is God who came to bring healing and rest to those who can't save themselves. Now, you see... Jesus healed this man, not by touching him with his hands, but he healed him by the power of his word. That's important because the opening verses of the Gospel of John, they tell us that Jesus is God and that everything that's created, the whole created world, was created by him, by Jesus. And so how did God create the world? The book of Genesis tells us he did it by the power of his word. He spoke and things came into existence. And now here he is. We, we, we see Jesus healing by the power of his word, the same power by which the universe came into existence. Now in order to heal the sick and fix that which is broken, Jesus speaks by the power of his word. And this miracle is also a sign of what Jesus came to do. You see this man, this invalid sitting by the pool, He's a perfect picture of where you and I are at on a spiritual level, in our spiritual condition. Like this man, we are crippled and lame. We have fallen and we can't get up. And all of us, the Bible says, have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of our sin is death. And like this man, we are unable to help ourselves. We try as we might. We can't just pick ourselves up and be better. We can't just fix our problem on our own. Now, some of us might think, all I need to do is just be a little bit better, or maybe just better than the other people around me. Isn't that the story of this man? If I could just be better, faster than all the other people around me, then I could be healed. My, what's broken in me could be fixed. But we're just like this man, broken and crippled and unable to help and save ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to us. The only one who actually has the power to save us and to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And he comes to you asking that same question he asked that man on this day. Do you want to be healed? Maybe you're like this man and you would say, yes, I do. I want to be healed. And I've been trying for so long to do it myself, but I don't have what it takes. Jesus comes and he invites you to repent in the very best sense of the word, to turn away not only from the things that you have been pursuing instead of him, but also the things that you have been placing your hope in besides him. 
And he invites you to turn away from those things and to turn to him and to receive from him the healing that you cannot earn and you cannot manufacture on your own. The healing of your soul. Not only was this miracle a sign of how Jesus came to bring healing, it's also a sign of how Jesus came to bring rest. Jesus chose to heal this man on the Sabbath, the day of rest. In the letter to the Hebrews, if you read further on in your Bibles, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 4, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that the Sabbath was invented by God. It was designed by God to be a picture of the true rest that would come to us when the Messiah came. The true rest that the Messiah would bring to the world and to us as individuals. Rest, not just for our bodies, but for our souls. You see, because of what Jesus did for you, you can finally rest from the labor of trying to prove your worthiness and earn blessings. You can rest knowing that everything that was needed to be done for you to be right with God, it has been done, not by you, but for you on your behalf by Jesus. He lived the life that you should have lived, a life of perfect obedience to God. And he died the death that you should have died. He took upon himself the judgment for your sins on the cross. And because of that, you can have rest in your soul. You can have rest knowing that no matter what happens to you in your life, your future, your destiny is secure and it's full of hope because what awaits you is eternal life. And even in this life, God will use even the most difficult things you face for good and for his glory and for his purposes. But there is a stipulation. You know that, right? There's a stipulation. Here's what, here's what it is. Back to our sentence, last part. The healing of a lame man on the Sabbath was a sign that Jesus is God come to bring healing and rest to those who cannot save themselves and believe in him. What happens in the rest of this chapter is interesting. The religious authorities, they confront Jesus. They effectively try to put him on trial. They bring charges against him. First, that he's breaking the Sabbath. And second, that he's committing blasphemy by saying that he is God. But then Jesus masterfully flips the script on them. And suddenly, rather than Jesus being the one who has to answer to them, suddenly they find themselves in a situation where they have to answer to him. And isn't that so often the case, right? How many of us sometimes act as if Jesus needs to answer to us? Jesus, I've got some questions. You've got some explaining to do, Jesus. Why did you do it like this? Why did you allow that to happen? I've got some questions for you. I'm going to put you on trial, Jesus. I'm going to charge you. But you know what happens? One day you come to the realization that it's not him who has to answer to you, but it's you who has to answer to him. And look at what Jesus says in verses 23 and 24. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come in, or he does not come into judgment, but has passed from life, or from death to life. Jesus then goes on to explain this, like how they have missed the entire point of the scriptures because they have failed to see that all of the scriptures point to him. And here's the point. The only way to experience the healing and rest that's available in Jesus because of what he's done for you is to believe in him, to believe in him. 
If you do that, Jesus says, you will have eternal life. You will not come into judgment, but you will pass from death to life. You know, sometimes you hear people say, you should believe in yourself. Or they might say, I believe in myself. What does that, what does that mean? You know what it means? To believe in yourself means that you have confidence in your abilities. It means that you, are, you believe that you are capable and that you have what it takes. Well, to believe in Jesus is like that, but it's different. See, to believe in Jesus means that rather than putting your confidence in your own strength and ability, you put your confidence in God's strength and ability. To believe in Jesus means to trust that Jesus has what it takes and that Jesus is capable to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And just like this man in this story, Jesus would ask you the same question today. Do you want to be healed? If so, then turn to him. Put your trust in him. Follow him. And as you do, he will enable you to do what he's calling you to do. The healing of a lame man on the Sabbath was a sign that Jesus is God, come to bring healing and rest to those who cannot save themselves and believe in him. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we also take communion. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.